For those of you who have been following the news this past week, you know it's been a pretty horrific week with some of the events that have taken place, and and obviously the most horrific and fairly close to home is is the events that took place at the church in Charleston, and and obviously our prayers are with the people that were involved and and the families of both the victims and the one who's been charged with the murders, and and our prayers are that. The saints from that church will continue to be uh, the strong testimony that they have been uh, ever since that it took place. Uh, to a lesser degree, but horrific as well, some of the events of this past week have been uh, the numerous shark attacks that have taken place uh, in North Carolina and in Florida. In fact, it was probably while we were here last Sunday that uh, within 90 minutes, uh, a shark attacked uh, a young girl and, and attacked a young boy, and in both cases they lost uh, limbs. And, uh, and then in the middle of the week, uh, there was another attack in Florida where uh, I, I believe it was a, a young boy was bitten on the leg. And, and, and as horrific as those events are, and as horrific to even imagine being bitten by a shark, it's been really encouraging to see the response of each one of those individuals to what was quite a horrific thing that has taken place uh, to them. Uh, I was in the States for a couple of days this past week, and the newspapers and the news reports were filled with information uh, about these shark attacks and, and how many shark attacks have actually taken place this year uh, on the East Coast uh, and in the Florida area, I guess, as well, of um, the United States. Uh, and we just were in Myrtle Beach, uh, and I convinced especially my oldest daughter, Lauren, that it's safe to go into the water. You don't have to worry about anything uh, touching you. So, I'm, you know, if there's anything to be glad about, I'm glad that these things happen. After we were in Myrtle Beach and, and after I was able to get uh, Lauren to come into the, into the ocean. Uh, but as I said, during the week, there was all of these uh, reports and information that, that uh, came out in the newspaper and on newscasts about sharks. And how do you respond if you find yourself uh, in the presence of a shark? And, and how do you prevent a shark attack? And, and how do you survive if you're actually being attacked by a shark? And, and I actually printed off one of the uh, reports, and, and some of the information is quite interesting. Some is not really that profound. Uh, it says, preventing a shark attack, the best way to survive a shark attack is to avoid one in the first place. And I thought, well, wow, that's deep uh, do not enter the water if sharks are known to be present. Uh, thank you very much. That's very helpful. Uh, don't enter the water if you're bleeding. That's, again, kind of... Uh, uh, I figured that one out already. And this one, I know no one's going to admit, and, and, and no one, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but this information may change your holiday behavior. Don't pee in the water. It says, we've all done it. We're too lazy to get out of the water to go to the bathroom. And it kind of feels good to pee while sitting in a body of water. So apparently that attracts sharks. So, so those are some of the things you don't want to do if you don't want to attract a shark. But then it actually says, well, how do you survive if you're being attacked by a shark? Uh, and, and this one says, hit him where it hurts. And I don't know sharks that well. But if you read a little bit, it says that you want to hit him in the eyes or in the gills. Uh, so never give up, never surrender. 
Keep pummeling the shark's eyes and gills until you either die or the shark goes away. (laughs) And, And then get out of the water and get help immediately. Woo. The shark is gone and you're still alive, but you're probably in bad shape, really bad shape. You're likely bleeding something horrible, which only creates a scent to attract more sharks. Get out of the water and get help as fast as you can. And then finally, it says, on the way to the hospital, develop an awesome story, one that no one will be able, be able to talk. So I found that really helpful uh, and know that I will now not uh, find myself uh, in the presence of a shark or I will know what to do, how to prevent a shark attack and survive if I actually am being attacked by a shark. But you know, on a more serious note, the New Testament actually warns us of another kind of attack. And it's not a shark attack, it's a wolf attack. And uh, Jesus himself said in Matthew 7, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. And then uh, a passage that we've referred to over the last couple of weeks, Paul in Acts chapter 20, uh, where he says to the elders uh, at the church of Ephesus, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. And so we've seen how we are to uh, prevent and survive a shark attack. Uh, it, it seems like you avoid, uh, run in retreat. And strike out if necessary. But how do we respond? And how do we prevent? And how do we survive a wolf attack? And obviously the wolves that uh, Scripture is referring to are false teachers uh, and their teaching. So those, those who claim to be Christians but deny fundamental doctrines. Or, or have distorted fundamental doctrines uh, of the Christian faith. And so we've been looking at Jude's letter over the last few weeks. And Jude's answer echoes the voice of Scripture in numerous places. And what Jude has said to us is to be on your guard, to not fall asleep on the watch, to keep ever vigilant lest we be led astray, and do everything we can to defend and contend for the faith. We've come to the end of our series, New Testament Postcards. And and this is the third week uh, in Jude. And I was commenting to someone this morning, uh, when I first started looking at this letter, I was kind of hoping I didn't have to cover it at all. And we could just somehow skip it. Uh, I then looked at it and thought, okay, I'm going to try to do this in one week. And the more I've gotten into Jude's letter, the more I realize it's it's so rich. And we could actually keep going in it. But I'm going to end end the series uh, today, given that we're coming uh, into the summer. And we've seen over the last couple of weeks that Jude's letters, some have called it the unintentional letter. And Jude says it right at the beginning of his letter that this wasn't my intention. I actually was going to sit down and write to believers after Paul and Peter have passed on. I was going to sit down and write a letter of encouragement to let you know that you're not alone, that I'm still thinking about you, and to encourage you by by writing about the benefits and the, the joy of the salvation that we share together. But then Jude says, although that was my intention, God had other plans. And although this is what I wanted to write, God told me that there was another warning that needed to be written because there was a real danger, a spiritual threat 
to God's children. And so Jude writes, and flip to Jude, because that's where we're going to pretty much be for the rest of our time this morning. Jude says that, although this is what I intended to write, I was compelled. I had the necessity to urge you to contend, to earnestly contend for the faith that's been entrusted to us. And we've seen how important some of those words are in verse 3 of Jude's letter. This idea of contending, uh, it brings with it a sense of agonizing, battling, to, to, to go to war over something. And Jude says, that's our attitude, that's the action towards the faith. The faith. And, and what is the faith? We, we've seen it's those, those commonly held Doctrines, the fundamental doctrines that, that true believers have held in common. It's what we believe about the Bible, what we believe about Jesus Christ, what we believe about salvation, what we believe about holy living. We are to contend for those things. We are to fight for those things. The faith that's been entrusted to us. This was not something that we've earned, but, but God has passed his truth on to our generation. And we are to understand it. We are to learn it. And we are to protect it. We are to defend it. We are to contend for it. But the question that we came to, and you can't help but come to, and Jude goes in great length in his letter, and we kind of skipped through it quickly last week, but he goes in great length to help us to understand what the enemy looks like. What are these false teachers like? What's their characteristics? What's their fate? What motivates them? And by the time we got to the end of that, we had to ask the question, how do we possibly contend against such an adversary? And I think even more importantly, and a more practical question, how do we survive? How do we even thrive in the context of false teachers and their teaching? And so last week we began to turn to the last few verses uh, in Jude's letter, where Jude is he's finished painting a picture of the false teachers. And now he's turning to believers. And he's giving us a strategy. A strategy for how we can survive and thrive uh, in the context, in the midst of false teachers. And so last week we saw that the first step of that strategy was don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. The warnings have been there and, and are there, and Jude is continuing to warn us that false teachers will be around. God's not caught off guard. Jesus warned his followers that Satan was going to do whatever he could to mess up the church. And one of the things he's going to do, he's going to use false teachers and their teachings to infiltrate the church, to teach error, and to lead God's children astray. And Jude says, remember, the words of the apostle. Remember what Paul has already warned us about. Remember what John has said. Remember what Jesus and others have said. So step one, don't be caught off guard. Don't be surprised. Be ready. And then we began to look at step two. And step two, if you're looking at Jude, covers verses 20 and 21. And we saw that step two of this strategy on how we survive and thrive in the midst of false teachers and their teaching is that we keep growing in the Christian life. 
Keep growing in our Christian walk. And I mentioned to you last week that that well-known phrase that the best offense is a good defense. Or sorry, the best defense is a good offense. I think it works both ways. So the best defense is a good offense. And so we saw last week what Jude is, is urging his readers and us is that we need to be devoted to the fundamental disciplines of the Christian faith. And I shared with you last week that this is so important. It's so critical. It's so relevant and practical. And it just doesn't have to be in the context of, of false teachers and their teaching. But it could be uh, with our struggle and with sin, the temptation to sin. It could be uh, with, uh, in the context of doubt or suffering. That if we want to survive and thrive in those contexts, we need to be deeply devoted to the fundamental disciplines of the Christian life. And so last week, we, we ended by looking at the first of four disciplines that Jude mentions. And, and that is in verse 20. He writes, But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. And we saw that faith is the exact same thing that he just talked about in verse 3. Contend for the faith. Build yourself up in the faith. Build yourself up in the fundamental doctrines that true believers hold in common. And how do we do that? By being grounded in God's word. And so I suggested last week that if we want to be able to recognize false teachers, if we want to be able to defend ourselves against false teachers and their teaching, if we want to survive and thrive, then we must be devoted. We must be grounded in God's word. And I suggested last week that, that again, one of the questions that a number of you have asked was, how do we defend ourselves from false teaching? How do we keep ourselves from being led astray? And I said, one of the things that we could do is study every false teacher, all of their teaching, and understand every detail so that we could identify the false teacher and their teachings. And some actually spend their time doing that, and we benefit from that. But I think a more effective and efficient use of our time for us average Joes is that we devote our time to understanding and being well-grounded in the fundamentals of our faith. And so although we may not know the name of every false teacher, we may not know all the labels and, and all the details of their doctrine, when we understand what the Bible teaches about itself and about Jesus Christ and about the doctrine of salvation and about all those things that we talked about in verse 3 as being our fundamental faith, when we understand those things, we will be able to smell a false teacher in their teachings a mile away. So it's important that we be grounded in God's word. And I left us last Sunday with some time statistics. And I've, I've heard from several of you that you were a little disturbed uh, at some of the time statistics that I shared. And I know some of you are a little disturbed with the, the five-hour bacterial cloud after you flush a toilet. And, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands how many people actually looked at your toothbrush when you went home last Sunday and, and moved it to a safer place. But so, some of you did mention that was a, your takeaway from my message last week. And I'm glad that you were deeply touched and moved. Uh, but the time statistics some of you, uh, some others of you shared with me was the one about how many hours the average adult teen spends looking at a screen. Non-work, non-school. 36 hours a week, 72 hours every two weeks. And we compared that to what the average time it is for someone who's actually been recorded uh, for the sale uh, of a recording of the scriptures. And the average time to read from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation is 72 hours. 
And so we were left with the challenge. If that's the case, if every two weeks we just shut off our screens and read from Genesis to Revelation, a good number of us would get pretty well through the book. Some of us might even be on a second uh, reading. And the challenge was, well, how many hours do we spend uh, in God's Word? Uh, And so today we we get to the second discipline that Jude mentions. And, And if that time statistic about how many hours or minutes we spend per week in God's word is troubling. Uh, This one's troubling for me. Uh, How many hours, how many minutes do we spend in prayer? You see, the second discipline that Jude points out is praying in the Holy Spirit. Fighting on your knees. uh, Being people of prayer. Someone someone said that perhaps the most uh, clear measure of a person's walk with God is the amount of time they spend in prayer. I was really impacted on Friday night uh, as uh, the team from Mysticity put on their dessert theater uh, and some of the comments that were shared about prayer. Uh, Ben specifically uh, shared about how up in Mysticity, And I think this was your phrase several times, Ben. I prayed like I have never prayed before. And what Jude tells us here is that if we are to keep growing in our Christian walk, we need to pray. In fact, he says we need to pray in the Holy Spirit. And that phrase might catch us off guard and and it's led people to take it down paths that was never meant to be taken. Jude is saying, pray in the Holy Spirit. What he means is we need to pray in the realm of the Holy Spirit. We need to pray under the control and in the guidance motivated by the Holy Spirit. And so he says what is actually a much more common term in Scripture than we might think. Pray in the Holy Spirit. And I think there's two things he really wants us to understand. The one is to understand the difference between what motivates the false teachers. And he's already shared shared that with us. These false teachers, they're motivated by greed. They're they're motivated like Cain was. Greed and, and a hatred of authority. They're motivated by selfish desire. They're not... They're not influenced or led by the Spirit, it says that that they're influenced and motivated by their own natural instinct. And Jesus says, but that's not how a true believer is supposed to be. A true believer is controlled. He's motivated. She is is surrendered to and, and guided by the Spirit. And so we pray in the Spirit. But another thing I think that, that uh, Jude is doing here is he's echoing the teaching of Paul uh, from Romans. And if you've got your Bible, keep your finger in Jude, but turn to Romans chapter 8. A passage that's very well known, especially the end of it. But understanding it in the context of what it means to pray in the Spirit, I think brings this text really uh, alive. So Roman 8, Roman 8 verse 6. And Paul writes, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. What does it mean we don't know what to pray for? We don't know how to pray. Well, we don't know the future. All of it anyways. We don't necessarily know the right answer to all the circumstances of life. 
We don't know what's going to happen next over here. And we don't know what's going to happen next over there. So, so in a way, we could say we don't know how to pray. But it continues. It says, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through world, wordless groans. We may, know, may not know how to pray or what to pray. But the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, living inside of us, is constantly interceding for us in groans that the Father understands. I love how John MacArthur describes this. He describes it as as the Spirit expressing certain groans and and moans and pains and and sympathies and, and concerns and passions under the Father on our behalf. And the Father understands it. Verse 27, And He, God, who searches our hearts, knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And so we have this beautiful picture, this beautiful truth. We have an advocate in heaven, Jesus Christ, who's interceding on our behalf. We have God the Spirit living inside us, praying constantly, interceding for us before God the Father. And God the Father understands the mind of God the Son, and God the Father understands the mind of God the Spirit because they are one. And so we've got this Trinitarian conversation going on, which I don't really understand exactly how it works. But I know this, God knows the mind of the Spirit. And he knows that the Spirit is praying consistent with the will of the Father on my behalf. And so what does it mean to pray in the Spirit? It means that we're praying consistently within the will of God. We are praying in surrender to the guidance and the control and the motivation of the Spirit. And so Jude says, pray. Pray in the Spirit. Pray in Jesus' name. We understand that. Pray that way. And why is this kind of prayer important? This deep prayer in the Spirit. Well, it's important because Scripture shows us time and time again how important it is. Important. The importance of prayers and the prayer life of those uh, and the resulting life they live because of this deep prayer, guided and motivated and controlled by the Spirit. And so you go through this, our favorite stories in the New Testament. One of my favorite stories, Simeon, when he meets Mary and Joseph and Jesus at the temple. How did Simeon know that this little baby that was with Mary and Joseph was the salvation that had been promised to him that he would see before he died? The text says that he was led by the Spirit. How did Philip know to talk to the Ethiopian eunuch? The text says the Spirit told him so. Why did Peter go to Cornelius' house and preach salvation to a bunch of Gentiles and see the family saved? The text tells us that he was told by the Spirit to go. Why did Paul not go to the province of Asia when he was on his missionary trip? It says that the Spirit kept him from going. And so we see these these great men and and women in Scripture and, and in the history of the church and the things that they have done. 
And they will tell you, it's because the Spirit told me. The Spirit guided me. I was kept from the, by the Spirit from doing that. The doors were shut. The doors were opened. And we read these texts, especially these ones in Scripture, and we go, you know, you know Philip and Simeon and, and, uh, and Paul and Peter, they, like they must have had, you know, like the Spirit on their shoulder talking to them. No, they, I think we have to read into it. They had a deep prayer life. Surrendered to the will of the Father. And they were guided and motivated by the, the, the communion and the fellowship that they had with God through the Spirit uh, in their prayer life. And we read from Ephesians 6 during our, our opening this morning. Paul writing to the Ephesians, how do we defend the attacks of the enemy? One of the great pieces of armor is prayer. In those last three or four verses that Katie read, pray. Pray for me. Pray for all God's people. Pray for yourself. Prayer is a great weapon. Prayer is a means of God's grace by which we tap into his power uh, and his resources. So if we want to be able to recognize and defend ourselves and to survive and thrive in the midst of false teaching, pray. And pray again. Jude continues and he gives us the third discipline. Keep yourself in God's love. Choose obedience. And what does Jude mean? Keep yourself in God's love. Like, do we act in a way that we make God to continue to love us? Well, that can't be true because God already loves us and he loved us while we were yet sinners and demonstrated that love by, by sending his son, Jesus. So, so that can't be what Jude means. So what does he mean keeping the love of God. What it literally means is keep ourselves in the realm of God's love. Keep ourselves in a place where we experience the blessings of God's love. And if you notice grammatically, it's kind of the center of these verses. Jude says, as you ground yourself in God's word and as you pray in the spirit... Keep yourself in God's love. And then the next thing that he talks about, kind of build around this keeping in God's love. Well, how do we keep ourselves in this place? How do we keep ourselves in a place where we are experiencing the blessings of God's love? Well, if you remember our series on the upper room, what did Jesus say? How do we remain or abide in his love? Anyone remember? By keeping his commands. Obedience. One speaker uses an illustration that all true followers of Jesus are held in the Father's hand. And nothing can take you away. Nothing can snatch you out of God's hands. And one of God's hands is a big letter D. Or sorry, O. For obedience. And there are those of us who live in God's left hand, obedience, where we experience the shower of God's blessings uh, from his love because we've chosen obedience. 
But there are others who still are in God's hand. Nothing will snatch you away from his hand if you're a true believer. But you're, you're, you're remaining in his hand, which has a big letter D. And, and this stands for discipline. Hebrews tells us that, and we understand this as parents, that if we love our children, we will chasten them. We will discipline them when it's necessary. And so some of us are living out our Christian experience in, in, in God's hand where the, the big letter D is. And others of us live in this hand where the the letter O is. And so the question is, where do you want to be living out your Christian existence? And the question, what does this have to do with false teachers and teaching? Well, the answer is, if, if, if... you are living in a place where you're experiencing the full blessings of God's love. You're, you're, you cherish it. You delight in it. You draw from it. You're, you're encouraged by it. You're overwhelmed by God's love and, and his mercy and, and his grace for you. You will not easily fall for the wooing words and false pitch of a, of a false teacher. It's like a telemarketer calling, trying to convince you to buy something that you know you don't need. It's like, sorry, I don't need it. Or trying to sell you on something that's new and improved or different from what you have already tested and proven and cherished. Well, I, I don't need what you're offering. I got this. And when you're living and experiencing the blessings of God's love, you don't need what a false teacher is trying to sell you. And so you can keep yourself and prevent yourself from falling to what the false teachers uh, are offering. And then we come to the last discipline. And Jude says, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Keep looking up. Keep looking up. Live each moment in the light of Christ's soon return. Live each day eagerly with great expectancy looking for the return of Jesus. Waking up every morning and saying, God, perhaps today, today is the day that you will come. And what Jude is saying is if we live with that perspective, there's a lot of things that we probably won't be doing. There's a lot of things that we won't start doing. And what's that mean for you and what's that mean for me? I think it means that we need to lift our eyes a little bit. We have to stop allowing the world and all of its trappings, whether it's possessions, whether it's passions, whether it's, whether it's time wasters. We have to lift our eyes and stop allowing the world to limit our horizons because we were created and made and saved for something so much greater. Jew continues. And so far, uh, he spent a lot of time talking about what we do inwardly how we build ourselves up, how we prevent ourselves from being attacked. How, how do we survive the attack of false teachers? And in a way, if we were talking about sharks, that's probably all we need. But, but what about those who have been affected and have been injured and hurt by the false teachers? What about the false teachers themselves? What should our response be? And it's funny, I was studying this very part of the passage in Markham, at a McDonald's, a very full McDonald's. And I thought, what is my response to those kind of people? Those who are teaching false error. Those who have been led astray. I think 
In many ways, I treat them like sharks. I avoid. I run in retreat. I keep myself in a nice, safe Christian bubble. And yet, as I looked around this McDonald's filled with all sorts of ethnic groups, I couldn't help but wonder how many actually here believe the same things that I believe. Probably very few. How many here have been led astray? How many are leading people astray? How many know nothing about God and his great news concerning Jesus Christ? And so Jude says, build yourself up. But the next step, look outward. Do everything you can to win back the lost, to win over the enemy. See, sometimes our greatest threat is also our largest mission field. And just as it's our responsibility to defend the faith, to contend for the faith, it's our responsibility to do what we can to reach the lost. And I want to just quickly skim through verses 22 and 23, but in verses 22 and 23, Jude identifies three categories of people. Be merciful to those who doubt. Those who haven't bought false teaching, hook, line, and sinker, but their faith has been shaken. They're confused. And to them, Jude says, show mercy. Show loving kindness, compassion. Reason with them. Win them back. The next group, the duped. Save others by snatching them from the fire. They're going to be those who have bought hook, line, and sinker, the false teaching. They're following them, but perhaps they don't really understand what they've gotten themselves into. And Jude says, with those people, much more uh, of an intervention is required. We need to snatch them from the fire. We have to save them. And then Jude mentions a third group. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh, See, you've got those who are doubting. You've got, you've got those who've been duped, who've been fooled. And then you've got those who are the devotees. Those who are hardline believers and followers of a false teacher, or maybe even the false teachers themselves. And what Jude says is, be careful, lest you be contaminated. John's second letter, Second John, he says, don't support them. Don't encourage them, the false teachers teachers uh, in their ministry. Don't lower your standards to try to evangelize them. The the imagery that Jude uses is, is very strong. Hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. The literal picture here is of stained underwear. That's the Greek And you know what you do with your child's stained underwear? Like this, right? And if you're a camp counselor and an unknown camper has left you a treasure, it might be with a stick. And that's how we hold stained underwear. And that's what Jude is saying. Be careful, lest you be contaminated. But look what he says in all three instances. Show mercy. Show mercy. How can you and I who have been shown so much mercy not live to be demonstrations of that mercy to others? 
And then we come to the end of his letter, probably the most well-known part, maybe the only known part of Jude's letter for many of you. You see, the bad news is this. If you want to swim with sharks and you're not trained, you don't have experience, you don't have the right resources, it's going to probably lead to failure. If we want to swim with wolves or run with wolves, maybe the wolves won't swim. If you want to run with the wolves, even if you just want to grow yourself up, you want to win the lost, and you're going to try to do it in your own strength and on your own power, it will lead to failure. But Jude reminds us at the, last, the end of this letter, the final step in his strategy, partner with power. I like how the King James starts, verse 24. Now unto him who is able. Love that Sunday school song. He's able. He's able. I know he's able. And you might be here this morning and you're worried about falling to the the error of false teaching. Remind yourself of God's infinite power. He is able to keep us from stumbling. He is able to keep us from falling. You might be here this morning and and you know that you've fallen into error. You've fallen into sin. Maybe you've never even come to God through a relationship with Jesus. And you've got your reasons why. Understand this. He can meet your need because He is able. And He has made a promise And he has a great purpose. And his purpose is to present you before his glorious presence. And his promise is this, that he will do that. He will present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. And that phrase, without fault, that's Old Testament sacrifice language. And how can we stand in the presence of a holy and almighty God Only through what Jesus Christ has done. By taking our place. By being the perfect sacrifice. And Jude ends the letter by going a full circle. Jude, a half-brother of Jesus who thought Jesus was nuts. Who eventually gave his life to Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Who writes the letter to contend against false teachers. Who one of their greatest false teachings were... That Jesus isn't who we believe Jesus is. That Jesus wasn't able to do what he said he could do. And Jude ends this letter. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And to present you before his glorious presence. Without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power and authority. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Before all ages. Now and forevermore. Amen. Praise team.